You know how somehow when you're online, uh, you know, you come across all kinds of interesting things, and, and uh, sometimes when you're online, things seem to find you. And I had that experience this past week. A uh, number of people passed along to me uh, this uh, little, nice little meme on, on the web called uh, The Bible, T-L-D-R. The Bible, too long, didn't read. <laughs> Uh, and some clever fellow, not a church fellow from what I can tell, put together this very quick synopsis of the Bible, which I wanted to share with you uh, this morning. So he, he shortened it down, the Cliff Notes version of the Bible. Uh, so in, in Genesis, you know, here's the scene. God says, all right, you two, don't do the one thing. Other than that, have fun. Adam and Eve say, okay. Satan says, you should do the thing. Okay. God says, what happened? We did the thing. Guys... The rest of the Old Testament, God says, you are my people and you should not do the things. We won't do the things. Good. We did the things. Guys, the Gospels, Jesus says, I am the Son of God and even though you have done the things, the Father and I still love you and want you to live. Don't do the things anymore. Okay, thank you. We've never seen him do the things, but he probably does the things when no one is looking. I have never done the things, Jesus says. We're going to put you on trial for doing the things. Pilate asked, did you do the things? No. He didn't do the things. Kill him anyway. Okay. Guys. Paul's letters. People, we did the thing. Paul says, Jesus still loves you, and because you love him, you have to stop doing the things. Okay. We did the things again. Guys. And finally, the book of Revelation. When Jesus comes back, there will be no more people who do the things. In the meantime, stop doing the things. Um, and uh, the Bible, T-L-D-R, too long, didn't read. Um, it seemed to fit perfectly with uh, the beginning of Advent, because Advent um, in its history has been a season of repentance, of turning our hearts again, to stop doing the things, and turn back to God, getting ready for Jesus um, at Christmas. But that, that kind of push and pull of uh, doing the things, don't do the things, guys. It's kind of a part of the story that runs throughout the Bible. And it's part of this kind of larger struggle and story about uh, the way the world is and the way that God wishes it to be. Um, the life that God intended for us with Adam and Eve and Eden uh, and as Jesus describes to us as the kingdom of God where peace and justice reigns, the, the lowly are lifted up, and the love of God and our neighbor are paramount. Advent is the season of getting ready for the birth of Jesus at Christmas. It is about the inbreaking of one world into another. In Advent, we hear calls from the prophet John the Baptist to repent, to not do the things. And Mary's song, The Magnificat, in which he sings about a radical reversal that her soon-to-be-born son will bring to the world. Jesus, the Son of God, humble and vulnerable, born and later killed under Roman oppression, the reign of God born amidst a worldly empire. The theme for the first Sunday of Advent, then, is always one version or another of apocalypse, of the end of one world as we have known it and the beginning of something new. The birth pangs of something being, be, being born from within the old world in order to transform it. And as we see in the Gospels and throughout Scriptures and in our world today, 
That is not an easy thing. This day and these readings assigned for it have taken on a new, newfound poignancy in this last week. They're seeing the events in Ferguson and the protests that have rippled out from there around the country. People have had strong reactions and have and do and will debate the particularities of what happened that night between Mike Brown and Darren Wilson, and I'm not here to do that. Um, but what I think Advent is calling me to do is to think with you about what is happening in the bigger picture. Um, because I think these demonstrations in Ferguson and around the country represent something more than just the lament over the death of Mike Brown. They're an outcry over the demonization of black men, racial profiling, institutional racism, poverty, militarization of law enforcement, and a culture of incarceration. Ferguson has become a flashpoint for urgent issues facing minority communities, issues which go largely unnoticed or ignored by the majority white culture. Ferguson has come to represent a national conversation about the toll that institutional racism and its many expressions take on our fellow, our fellow citizens and on us. Um, in the days following Mike Brown's death, a columnist, Leonard Pitts, described the protests in this way. He described them as a, an act of outcry, a scream of inchoate rage. That's what happened this week in Ferguson, Missouri, he said. The people screamed. These screams echo the cries of the oppressed and the longings for a more just society that has echoes throughout the scriptures, uh, including the ones that are appointed for today. We hear in the opening verse from Isaiah, Oh, that you would tear down the heavens and come down. That echoes those cries of mourning and grief and cries for justice and fear and confusion. It's like Isaiah was saying, God, we wish you would hurry up and come back and take away all this pain and suffering. We have messed this thing up. We have done the things, and we need your help. The book of Isaiah as a whole is about the experience of Israel before, during, and after their exile in Babylon. Um, it's one of the most important stories uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, after all the stories that we're most familiar with probably in Genesis, um, we come to the story of the Babylonian exile in which the powerful kingdom of Babylon comes to Israel, sacks Jerusalem, and leads many of its citizens out into exile in Babylon where they stay for 50 years. The first part of the book of Isaiah warns the people beforehand to repent and warns them about the judgment and exile to come. The second part of Isaiah comforts the people who are now in exile and looks ahead to the restoration and return home. And the third part of Isaiah addresses the return home once they are there, uh, beginning again after half a century in exile. Biblical scholars call this 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Isaiah. Pretty clever, huh? Anyway, uh, when I first read our passage from Isaiah for this morning, I assumed that it fell within 2nd Isaiah, that it was directed to a people already in exile, calling out for God to deliver them. But when I looked closer, I found that this passage actually comes in 3rd Isaiah, we're here, the people have already returned home. They are back in the promised land. The restoration they have waited for has already happened. And yet there are still problems. 
specifically economic oppression and idolatry. And so this cry in Isaiah is from a prophet and a people who thought that everything would be okay. They thought they had things figured out. They thought things would be right and good. And they've realized with the help of Isaiah that they are not. They are still doing the things. Imagine for Isaiah and the exiles how, much, how must, that must have felt to finally return home after 50 years in exile only to be confronted with the brokenness and idolatry and injustice that were all part of the problem in the first place. They thought they had it figured out. But alas, we and this world are still painfully broken. And perhaps this week the same could be said of us. This week I've been thinking back to the early days of the civil rights movement, the 1950s and 1960s, about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr., now idolized, but then considered rabble-rousers, themselves arrested, protesters, dangerous, and uppity Negroes. I looked at some of the images from the early days of the movement, and they were eerily similar to the scenes we have seen this week on the news. Rosa Parks and Dr. King and the events of the civil rights movement have been validated by history, but in a way they have also been sanitized. We think they are back in the past Dr. King showed us the world as it really was, a world that um, was a complete reality for African Americans, but the majority culture couldn't or didn't want to see. They were subjected to tear gas and threats and beatings and countless injustices. Dr. King told us that God had a dream about a new world of justice and equality and reconciliation. He told us that we have a lot of work to do and a long way to go, and we have come such a long, long way. But there is so much more to do, and we see that this week. The world that God wants for all God's children is still trying to be born into the world. This week we are experiencing the birth pangs once again. The charge of Advent is to keep awake, or as some are saying this season, stay woke. Stay awake and watch for the birth of Messiah. Stay awake and watch for the second coming of Christ. Stay awake to the new world, the kingdom of God that is trying to be born once again into the midst of the world's empires. Among many other things, the civil rights movement was about waking people up to the daily realities of African-American brothers and sisters. In the scriptures, we see a God who is fully engaged with the plight of the oppressed, a God who is moved by the cries of the grieving and the hurting, a God who responds with action and through his people. We see this especially in Isaiah and the work of the Hebrew prophets and also in the ministry of Jesus. At the heart of the Bible is the beating heart of God, a heart that burns with compassion and justice for the oppressed of every time and place. God wants to set the citizens of Ferguson, its people, its police, and all of us, everyone, free from brokenness and oppression and the snares of racism. God wants to set us free from the broken world that we have created. Ultimately, when Jesus comes back, he's going to make everything right. But until then, God is still at work in the world. And until then, we must continue to work for justice and stop doing the things. In Advent, we get ready and lay claim once again to the inbreaking 
of the Son of God into the world, born in poverty, laid in a food trough, born to lowly parents and oppressed people. He came and comes again to us this season and this Christmas to bring hope and a new world to bring the kingdom of God. In his commentary for our reading from Mark today, Mark Allen Powell writes this. He says, Hope does not disappoint. Salvation becomes a reality. In Mark's gospel, we get a promise that when all is said and done, we will have our happy ending and it will never end. This triumph of hope, furthermore, will truly be cataclysmic. The world as we know it projects pessimistic outcomes, but that world belongs to God and it can be changed. It will be changed and changed so radically that people will someday speak of a time when heaven and earth passed away. Yesterday was the feast day, the day of remembrance for Dorothy Day, who was one of the founders of the Catholic Worker Movement, who again opened our eyes to the plight of the poor and the hungry uh, and working to bring to birth God's uh, kingdom on earth. And uh, I just want to close with something she wrote because it seems so fitting for her feast day and for the week that we have experienced. She writes this. What we would like to do is change the world. Make it a little simpler for people to feed, clothe, and shelter themselves as God intended them to do. And by fighting for better conditions, by crying out unceasingly for the rights of workers, the poor, the destitute, the rights of the worthy and the unworthy poor, in other words, we can, to a certain extent, change the world. We can work for the oasis, the little cell of joy and peace in a harried world. We can throw our pebble in the pond and be confident that its ever-widening circle will reach around the world. We repeat, there is nothing we can do but love. And dear God, please enlarge our hearts to love each other, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy as our friend. Amen.